0: Guardilla del poeta is word, La pesadilla del poeta is word, El paraíso del poeta is word, El compromiso del poeta is word. world. Buffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts, a non-profit organization dedicated to challenging and expanding conceptions of human possibility, and the home of Station Hill Press. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network, and our cover art and theme music is by Havana poet Omar Perez, the author of Cubanology. We're live on Pacifica Radio Network and available on any and all, including your favorite podcast venues. If you want to be in touch, including with any questions, insights, notices of gaffes or blunders, suggestions for future sessions, we are very open to those. As we are to donations to our enterprise, please write or call us at Station Hill Press or email bc at StationHill.org. And there we go, there we go, there we go. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truett, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt.
1: I am Sparrow.
0: And my name is Andrew McCarran. And so I think that this will be our fourth a session yeah. on the nature of love. Um, but it's actually sort of three and a half or four and a half. I've gotten lost in love. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And, um, but I think this is going to be the end of love. Oh. I feel <laughs> like we're coming to, uh, you know, the last fiery moments. It's a lot. I feel like fireworks, you know, I think now we're going to get the mm-hmm. finale because now we're going to oh. talk about what we, really think love is, perhaps. Mm, yeah, finally. Which, to Sparrow, he uh, castigated us for falling short on that mark. Did I? So far. Yeah, you just said, you know, none of us have really talked about what we think love oh, is. In other true, words, yeah. we brought in, like, magpies, you know, scraps from all over and built our, our little nest. But uh, now we need to touch fire to it, the fire mm. of love. Maybe. I
1: mean, I do have a place to begin, but I, I don't know if it's the right place to begin. Just because I just took the bus here. Anyway, I fell asleep on the bus and uh, while I was trying to meditate. And then I was walking here from the bus and thinking, yeah, what about sleep? What about uh, dreams? Is there love in dreams? You know how they say uh, you can't um, die in a dream? I think maybe you can't love in a dream. It seems to me that in my dreams, there's attraction and anxiety. And sometimes I'm married to my wife. But I don't know that I've ever experienced love in a dream.
2: What, what about, uh, and I think this came up in a previous conversation, previous really? podcast. Um, well, what I'm about to say, that is not what you said. Um, uh, I need to introduce the, uh, an antecedent. What about the genre of the visitation dream? mm mm-hmm. And the visitation dream, um, commonly reported, it's uh uh yeah, you know, it's in ancient uh, Egyptian literature in um modern day experience. Um commonly reported once again, and that's where uh, a deceased person will 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 visit one. We talked about this, Sam. You told oh, the story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, Your and my grandfather came to visit. Yes, my grandfather yeah. came to visit. Um, you know, lots of examples of this type of dream, mm. where um, there mm. is a union of spirits, an encounter mm. that uh, is rarely terrifying. <laughs> mm. That there's uh, something I mean, beautiful, um, redemptive, uh, some closeness, some intimacy that's present that has a therapeutic quality to it often.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've had erotic dreams, um, variously. And I once had a dream at a uh, art colony. I was in a cabin, lying in bed. I was sleeping. I awoke, I, 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 awoke, I thought, from my sleep at the foot of my bed. A woman with uh, beautiful sort of brown hair piled up. And she was wearing a white shift. Um, you know, like you would ascribe to like a Roman matron. And it and it was a woman who wasn't young but wasn't old. She was and I was young at that juncture. And um I I uh, I did something I feel was probably inappropriate to the moment. I think probably it would have been sort of appropriate to say hello, how are you, you know, why are you here? But instead, I reached out to embrace her. Mm. And then as soon as I did that, you know, gone. Ah. Um, so that wasn't quite. And also, I'm not sure it wasn't wouldn't have been a it would have, wouldn't would have been a love embrace. It would have been an erotic embrace or I don't know what kind of embrace. But so that was, was, my, she, was this a dream or was real? Yeah, that's the thing is that it was at the threshold of I had not to my recollection been dreaming but i woke up and as though it as though she were a dream i saw a figure sitting on the foot of my bed in this white shift and i believe that it was katrina trask actually now that i reflect back on it who's that um, katrina trask was the woman who inherited a pile of money from her from the death of her husband and um she started the art colony Yado in Saratoga Springs oh. yeah
1: but you were and at a different I mean, art colony what you you weren't at Yado at that
0: moment no i was i was at Yado at that point and woke up from a dream in which i believe I mean, believe <laughs> it's absurd. I don't, you know. It was you just were like, under the impression that it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just because of that, she was really into that sort of white shift thing and that kind of, um, I guess, you know, Botticelli or something like that. That kind of idea of the of the maiden of the white robe of springtime of some. She had a mystical bent. Was she? Deceased at the time of the dream, mm. she was she was quite deceased. Okay. I'd say maybe uh, de- 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 I think she died in the early twenties. Oh. No, so she'd maybe been dead sixty years plus or minus sixty seventy years for sure. Yeah, it sounds like a ghost. I think it was a ghost. I think, I think it might have been a ghost. Yeah,
2: I um, you know it just comes to me that you know I've had an intense psychic week. Psychological huh? week or two, just a lot of psychological activity, a lot of spiritual activity. In part because I've, I'm about a month into um, working with a new analyst who uh, I mentioned before, who comes from um, a Jungian tradition. Hmm. Uh, I think he's really quite good. But I did, I did have a dream. I've been dreaming vividly again after a period of um, insignificant dream experience. And I did have a dream that I think is a philia dream. It's a dream of friendship to answer your question, Sparrow, mm. about um, the presence or absence of love in multiple forms in the dream state. Uh, I wrote it down, uh, just a few sentences. It was not an elaborate dream. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is a friend uh, who I haven't seen maybe in about four or five years, but with whom I I uh, have collaborated. And I had two dreams involving him. The first one uh, occurred a year ago. It's a little complicated to get into at the moment. Here's the second one. And the friend's name is Sean. I had my second ever dream featuring you last night. I shared the previous one last year, if you will recall. In this dream, I was at my parents' house, and it was dark. You appeared rather suddenly in the driveway with one of your dogs. I had a dog as well, a big friendly white and black sheep dog. Mm. At first I was flummoxed, confused as to how and why you were in Poughkeepsie and why you were in my dream. There was dream lucidity because I was vaguely aware that I was dreaming and flummoxed as well because I feared how the dogs would interact. Would they growl, bite one another, or run away? If they didn't get along, how would that impact our time together? They ran up to one another and began playing. It was a dream of friendship. The dogs were the nonverbal, bestial parts of us that were able to be in each other's company without the cover of words or rules of social comportment. I didn't realize I even had a dog, but I simultaneously knew my dog very well. He, she had been inside me for a very long time, but I hadn't been in the habit of letting him, her out. Interesting. Interesting.
1: So, what's happening while well, you we are... let
2: the dogs out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You'll let, laughs> Who we'll let, let, let the dogs out? <laughs> Apparently, I did. My psyche did. What, yeah. what was well, also, point?
0: it could be that you and your friend, like you were allowing your diamonds to play together, like your totem animals. Mm-hmm. Since you're wearing, yeah. uh, I, I should disclose to our listeners, your wolf t shirt.
2: I am wearing my wolf t-shirt mm. at the moment. The spirit of the dog runs strong.
0: Yeah. Mm. And in real life, you have a cat. Right? Is
3: that
2: right? My cat, Lulu.
3: Hmm.
2: But the the dream was a very pleasant one. Um, there was this moment of apprehension that was resolved in the dream. And I think it was a type of love and trust
3: mm. in
2: in uh, the act of emerging in a friendship um, in a, a fuller way than we might or I might ordinarily.
1: So what's happening while the dogs are playing? You and your friend are sort of standing back, watching the dogs. Mm. Yeah. You're not talking to each other.
2: No, we're not talking. Uh, and mm. then the dream dissipated, and I woke mm. up. Mm. Hmm. I did. Think, I, I thought it was uh, it was an interesting dream.
1: Yeah, it is very. Uh, yeah. Very sweet dream. Seems. I to thought me.
2: so. Yeah. Yeah so I, I do think that love exists in dreams and um actually the the topic that I wanted to to discuss uh which I think we touched upon was uh i don't know broader categories of love um
3: mm-hmm.
2: and not just eros romantic love, but maybe love between friends or that, that uh in particular that might grow into something something larger I've been reading um and thinking about the book of Jonah lately. But well, Jonah swallowed by this this whale hmm. um
1: big fish right
2: never named a whale a big fish uh he's he's fleeing the uh his destiny. Yahweh commands him to go to a place called Nineveh, which is a Gentile city of one hundred and twenty thousand people to uh implore the population to repent uh and he he doesn't want to do it, so he boards this ship to uh Tarshish which is, I guess, the equivalent of a party a party island. Oh, yeah? Yeah, in the ancient world. I guess it would mm. be the equivalent of going to St. Bart's or something. Club Med?
0: Club Med, <laughs> something
2: of the sort. But, uh, you know, to make a long story short, he's he's thrown uh, over the uh, the side of the boat. Well, God
0: he's, creates this big storm. This it's tempest. Like, yeah. yeah. yeah the, the, uh, and then they... They discern that he's a Jonah, which is where you get that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. That he is a Jonah and he fesses up to it, explains the whole situation.
2: Eventually, um, the cast lots, he loses and then he's thrown overboard and the tempest goes away. So the ship is saved, but he's swallowed by this big fish and he's there for um, the numerologically significant period of three days and three nights and eventually he's spit up, and where is he um, spit up? But he's spit up, of course, into Nineveh. He finds himself in the very place he feared going, and he does um, prophecy when he's there. It takes him a few days to walk across the city. Um, it's a complicated story, but this one Jungian I was listening to on a podcast suggested that Jonah had eventually found him himself to found his way to a, a broader category of love. Beginning to approximate that, but then he regresses and it gets complicated. He wants God to annihilate the Ninevites, but God forgives them. He's upset. So there are a lot of dimensions to this story. But I mean, I have been personally interested in what it means to evolve into a broader category of love. Love that um, can be generalized, love that circulates between um, a large number of people. Love that becomes a way of being in the world.
1: I mean, he really, in a sense, I I don't think it's exaggerating to say that Jonas saves the world. You know, he's a, he saves the city anyway, which is a vast city. Yeah. And it's, you know, he's a guy who's called to this destiny, like a messianic type destiny to uh, to really bring salvation to the world. And he succeeds. Um, the, he goes to the king of Nineveh, and then was, uh, the king says, Yes, everyone has to wear sackcloth and ashes, even the animals. Even the animals.
2: I don't think he ghosted the king. I think the king hears about it.
1: Oh, is that right? I don't remember. Yeah, that. I
2: think the king hears about it, and the king, you know, issues this decree. Oh, it doesn't even the, meet Jonah. Yeah, but his words, his words. Even though he only utters, I think a handful of words, he repeats the words over and over again. They huh. have such force and authority yeah. that people respond. But. Um, Jonah's is not able to stay there. He's not able to like um find a home in that love. He he returns to his old ways. He you know, he quarrels with Yahweh, he flees. He, he flees to the desert. He he makes this structure, right? And this uh, this little hut. This um, uh
1: this uh what is it? Like a kind of thistle, some kind of plant grows up over him. The sun is very hot. Yes. And um and there's a big plant that grows up kind of magically over to protect him from the sun. And then a worm comes like in that uh, William Blake poem and cuts down the uh, gourd. I think it's a gourd plant. And then uh, Jonah's really miserable, really angry at God. Why did, you, why did you cut down that plant that was sh- shading me from the sun?
2: And then and, and then the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not work for and which you did not grow, which appeared overnight and perished overnight. And should not I care about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not yet know their right hand from their left, and many beasts as well, that's where the book of Jonah ends.
1: Yeah, I, li- I like the translation that ends... Uh and also much cattle
2: and also much cattle i love that
1: yeah that's mm. uh, that's uh, instead of the part where where you read about the beasts i mean i, I think that's maybe the jewish translation you you read it on um, yom kippur it's it's the book that's read every yom kippur which is really weird because it's 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 really i think unique maybe in the history of religion it's the story of a, a prophet of God who desperately does not want to be a prophet of God. He'll do anything to avoid being doing the will of God. And then to the end, he, he remains, he's an unwilling savior of this city. And then to the end, he's still resistant. He's like a rebel against God. But he and does,
2: he, doesn't he repent, though, when he's in the belly of the whale, he acquiesces to the will of God. When he's in the
1: belly of the whale, he writes these beautiful prayers that are also kind of poems or psalms that he says to God. I don't remember them, but they're, I think, very high literature. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he seems in the belly, you know, he's in this state, that state, like a kind of meditative state where you're removed from the world. You don't know whether you're going to live or die. And finally he finds kind of spiritual wisdom there or something like that
2: it's really interesting that he's in the belly
0: of the whale it's quite literally a narrative of death and rebirth Mm -hmm. well it's interesting norman mailer of course became friends i don't know if he loved him with a guy named jack abbott who Mm -hmm. was in prison for murder and but he was a good writer and uh Norman Mailer encouraged Jack Abbott, and Jack Abbott pr- produced a book called *In the Belly of the Beast*. Oh, yeah. um, and then Jack Abbott was released from prison on Norman Mailer's say-so or uh, swagence or whatever. And then uh, Jack Abbott was going out, went out to dinner one time, and he killed a bunch of people and went back to jail. Well, no, what it
1: was is it was right in the East Village. I used to pass yeah. that place all the time. He went into some diner, mm. and he yeah. asked him if they if he could use the bathroom, and they said, no, it's closed, it's broken or something, and he just stabbed the waiter to death. Yeah. You know, he had maybe poor impulse control.
3: You I know, would The say. thing
1: about prison, <laughs> everything is very organized, you know. Mm. And He wasn't used to He, I think he spent a lot of his life in prison. And I think the complexity or what the uncertainty of, of real life, plus the weird experience of going from being in prison for murder, which I think he was in prison for murder, to being a literary celebrity, that can't be too good for anybody.
0: Yeah, he needed a, needed um, your uh, therapist, uh, Andrew, to uh, make <laughs> yeah. that transition. But one thing I wanted to say is that my wife, Relative to this messianic calling, she often speaks of not getting in the way of the universe or trying to be in the way of the universe, Um, apropos making decisions and, you know, seeking to move in a way that is in accord with um, what Mm. she terms the universe, which might be, uh, you know something at the edge of which god is uh trembling and then uh the other thing is andrew the phrase that you read relative to the state of the Ninev- ninevins is that they don't know what the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing yeah that's right that's the well, they don't not- they
1: don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know. No, they
0: don't know their which is which. I think which. that's a super. You know, because it picks up on Jesus, who says, you know, that one should give, and this is something that we've talked about before. That you know, to truly give is to give as though your left hand does not know what your right hand is doing. That it's just so natural that you don't. That thought cannot intercede in the. Act. Mm-hmm. Huh. So it's interesting that that trope of the left and right hands com- comes up uh, as a is a phrase out of the old into the into his teaching. You
2: know, uh, that's
0: really super interesting.
2: Uh, you know, what I was reading recently was uh, the, the work of um, Abraham uh, Maslow, mm-hmm. the um, mid 20th century psychologist, father of positive psychology.
1: It's the hierarchy right. of values right that's right what the hierarchy
2: for. of needs yeah the hierarchy of needs uh, probably most well known for that but he developed in uh, his book the uh, what was it called the uh, farther the furthest reaches of human nature the farther reaches further reaches of human nature he developed a Jonah complex huh huh a notion of the Jonah complex and um, and this is how he read uh, the biblical book. Um, that it's very hard to sustain the level of um, love mm. necessary um, to do uh, the prophetic work, the work of the universe that Jonah is called to do. That it, it, it only you know, for most people um, a peak experience like that. What I'm referring to is generalizable love, the expression of love for all, cannot easily be sustained. That it's mm. uh, it's, it's transient. And one will find oneself back in the uh, in the shadow of one's former ways, um, dealing with um, various karmic knots and contradictions and doubts. Hmm. Uh, that's how he interpreted hmm. the Book of Jonah, And I think that's uh, I think it's an interesting um, theoretical insight into the experience of of people, not all, but but some.
1: It reminds me, I don't know if I ever mentioned this. I had this roommate when I lived in a sort of like you could call it an ashram. A, a, an apartment when i lived on 109th street on the upper west side come to think of it um that was a sort of the headquarters of the ananda marga society and my roommate i won't give his name he used to talk about what he called the rubber band effect i don't know if i ever talked about that in these podcasts the rubber band effects which i which i think is just exactly what maslow is talking about You're You're very disciplined, you're working hard, you're doing your meditation, you're following all the principles, and then boingo, you suddenly find yourself compulsively gambling or um, eating uh, voraciously when you're not hungry. You know, you find some vice that uh, you're kind of drawn to out of because you just can't sustain that. And come to think of it, when I saw Ramdas speak, the one time I saw Ramdas speak, He said, uh, you know, towards the end of his talk, if I remember, he said, you know, a lot of you tonight, you're going to go home and you're going to eat lots of ice cream or you're going to do talk nonstop. You're going to do something because the the high that we're collectively all on is going to fall and then and then it's going to dissipate. And then you're going to find yourself, you know, he didn't use the word vice, but some some sort of uh, you'll take refuge in some, uh, you know. Lower pursuit.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I think this is, it's it's interesting. Sam,
0: what are your feelings or thoughts? Well, I mean, I did have two things to say about the nature of love from where I sit and look out and they seem to be perhaps interrelated. I mean, for me, the, State of love is the state of union. Um, is the state of a non-separate um, condition, uh, in which the, in which our three brains are synchronized. You know, from a Gurdjieff Aspensky standpoint, say, or from a Buddhist standpoint, um, you know, we have this. Uh, brain that we carry in our craniums we have the brain that resides in our spine and we have the brain that you know principally kind of broken but is in our solar plexus that these three areas Um, you know and that's not necessarily in the chakra system in the more in the sort of buddhist thing you talk about uh body speech and mind but when these when these elements are in a state of complementariness of union, um, I, I believe that that is the state of love. And that one is able through experience, through chance, through practice, through pitfalls, through... Uh, Pratt Falls happenstance, getting swallowed by whales, I don't know <laughs> to to get into that and one can also come to its come to it through uh, relationships um, you know and most powerfully through you know meeting um, a person with whom one has that kind of an erotic, uh, aspect, but the challenge with that those forms of love is that they are equivalent to W. B. Yeats, you know, talking about being tied to a dying animal. That these are experiences in which that to which you've projected your love is um, is a, is passing, you know, over the course of time, or you know that it can fall in and out. It's not as stable, this kind of uh, relationship-based
1: love. uh, is not as uh, sort of reliable as the kind of interior, unified, personal, unified love. That's kind of what you're saying.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that is true. But at the same time, love in its experiences... One of surrender, mm. um, is a, is beyond words, is, is experiential, but difficult to describe. Mm. That it has a feeling of tenderness. It's a sort of, um, bitter, it's a bitter, sweet throbbing you know, really mm. in one's chest. One can also experience it that way. Um but mm. it is um inimicable. You know, the state of love is uh is unmistakable, but is also very difficult to speak of. And so I did have something else that we could speak of um mm. that I feel is complementary to mm. it. What well, I mean, I, uh, it occurred to me from my reading of Paradise Lost that Milton talks about the angelic state. Um, and he likens it to a state of intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And intuition is actually a pedagogical thing. Intuition, tuition. Um, it's a state of kind of mentor, mentee to tutor. Um, mm-hmm. but I think that You know, intuition is a gut feeling, but it's also, um, according to, and I I wrote this down, the Encyclopedia Britannica says, intuition is the power of obtaining knowledge that cannot be acquired either by inference or observation, Mm. by reason or experience, and, um, you know, I, I was sort of touched by the dogs playing in your dream, um, Andrew, mm. because that sort of diamond, that kind of idea of the guardian angel, um, mm. you know, that there is this angelic penumbra to our experience to what we are, that mm. is this possibility that we... Have And that I I think I can act as a sort of guide, you know, in terms of that, um, Mm. the way of the universe, um, but it's also our potentiality. Um, and Mm. so, so Milton speaks of the angelic condition and I'll, and I'll, it's from book five Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'll read you these, I guess, five lines. Um, from 486 to 490, and it goes like this <laughs> The soul reason receives, and reason is her being. Discursive or intuitive dis- discourse is oftenest yours. The latter most is ours, differing but in degrees, of kind the same. Hmm. And these are. This is Raphael speaking to Adam. Ah, well. I yeah. see. Yeah. Can you read that one more time? Absolutely. Thank you so want to bu- really So by ours, tricky. What hours? He means the angels belonging to correct. Them? Yeah. Yes. So this is how it goes. The soul reason receives and reason is her being. You'll notice the pronoun, the female pronoun is her being discursive or intuitive. Hmm. Uh, That is discursive reason or intuitive reason. Actually, I'm a little unclear about this. Hmm. Discourse is oftenest yours, you know. Dichotomy, back and forth. Um, The latter most is ours. That is intuition, differing but in degrees of kind the same.
1: Hmm. So, in in other words, all the different intuitions that angels have are just differ in um, in degree, but they're all the same. That's what what that line means. You think?
0: I I believe that they're. That the, when we as some folks with an X, F O L K X, (laughs) when we have these gut feelings, these moments at which we have a knowledge or understanding of something without necessarily building it up or reasoning it out, that that is the same as the angels abide in, and it's just like a lesser, it's just sort of like a, a lesser state. Whereas oh, for I the see. angels, it's a far more pervasive, hmm. profound, hmm. deeper, richer um, condition. Hmm. Sam, can you, yes, sir? Il-
2: could you illustrate through a personal example or, you know, a hypothetical literary example is fine. Uh, an instance in which intuition leads to the inner unity of love, those three minds coming together. Uh, What does that look like? What can that look like? Uh, I'm so intrigued by what you're saying. I seek to um, explore it in uh, human terms,
0: in in the the lived realm. Um,
3: Hmm.
0: uh, Yeah, I mean, I've had... I I believe that for example that which we might ascribe to love at first sight Mm -hmm. may be a coincidence of of that, that it is that one has the just the the just the event horizon of this visual vision of somebody seeing somebody and having that feeling Mm -hmm. of oh this is somebody that i'm going to be with this is somebody whom i'm gonna you know spend the rest of my life with or um just that that immediate sense of um Hmm. connection i mean i would say i was um you know i would say i had that feeling with omar perez well yeah
3: you were talking about that
0: yeah i met him and i saw immediately man you know this I saw immediately, Oh, this is somebody with whom I want to, and am going to spend time. And I brought, I made that happen, you know, going down to Havana, big hassle, you know, flying down there, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, and, and that's not a situation of any sort of romantic thing. It's just, and it is, but it is filial love, no doubt.
3: Yeah.
0: And, um, and moreover, definitely a condition of tutor. I mean, definitely a condition for me of you know, I'm I've learned, and maybe like you know from a practical standpoint, a quantitativ,e uh, quantitative. Omar, it hasn't taught me very much. What he taught me was something that was very different, like something that could only be. Enacted could only be, it was absorbed through some other mm. level, hard to, um, hard to identify. If that answers your question, Andrew. Yeah, for sure. I was, um, uh, looking through
2: these, uh, uh, very much uh, in the, um, vein of what you're discussing. I was re re-reading some of these letters that were written by, um, a Russian theologian who I've mentioned before, Pavel Florensky. And in in the early 20th century, in, in 1908, I believe it was essentially his um, master's in divinity thesis. He wrote this uh, work called The Pillar and Ground of Truth.
3: Hmm.
2: I believe it was um, titled, went by a different title when it was first published. Um, and that title, um, I have it written down here somewhere. One moment, see if I can find it. Hmm. Um, hmm. Hmm. Um, hmm. Hmm. Um, Yeah, it it, it was his his thesis prior to being um, ordained to the Russian Orthodox priesthood. And his master's thesis and um, some other, uh, uh, a few other texts that were then um, concatenated into the pillar and ground of truth. And it's a series of letters. And he he wrote this one letter on friendship. Mm. And... um, it begins so beautifully, it begins with a, a moment of um, I'm just going to read uh, read the description here, the, the very beginning. The snowstorm swirls in endless circles, covering the window with the fine snowy ash and beating against the window glass. A hill of frosty dust has settled on the bush in front of the window, and the snowy pyramid grows with each advancing hour. The paths are a smoke. When you try to go outside... The snowy smoke bursts out from beneath your feet. The air vent wheezes. Wind gusts. Extract moans from the stovepipe. Again and again the snow-white eddies whirl about. The winter decoration has been torn from the trees. And the trees stand with bare, outstretched branches rocking back and forth. You listen to the noise in the pipe, to the wheezes of the vent. The soul becomes still in dim recollections or premonitions and seems to dissolve in the noises. It is as if you yourself are turning into the whirling snowstorm. The window is already half-covered. A twilight half-darkness has begun to reign in the room. Today, there is constantly in my memory that frosty and snowy day when you and I were walking to the Parklead Hermitage. We were walking through the forest. A path had hardly been made through the deep snow. We kept getting stuck. Nevertheless we got to the hermitage. Those few days feel like an entire lifetime. Fasting, the common prayer before the large crucifix. Mm -hmm. We would rise at night, it was cold, and the darkness we would reach the church with difficulty through snow banks. Descending beneath the earth we would stumble. It was half dark in the church, as in a sepulchre. Do you remember the ancient monk? Utterly bent the one who was like St. Seraphim? Do you remember Father Pavel, the young monk who killed himself with fasting, the one who took communion with us? Even then it was obvious that he did not have long to live. He did in fact die soon after this from extreme abstinence. You and I took communion together. That was the seed to everything that I now have. For it is not for nothing that our Abba told us so many times, now only after his departure do I begin to understand the secret meaning of his repeated persistent words. And I quote, a brother helped by a brother is as strong as a fortress. This is what I wish to elucidate to some extent in the present letter. I'm, I'm sorry, it goes on and on from there. But the the friendship, this instance of sophilia becomes the... um the groundwork for the entire theology that he develops across these letters. Huh.
1: Well that's great. Thanks a lot.
2: It's pretty cool. Yeah, well, that's it's fascinating. Yeah. Thought- Pavel Florencio who died in a gulag. Yeah.
0: Really? Uh-huh. Oh, you mean by I'm his not surprised.
2: Yeah, he was, the, he, um, he was killed in a gulag. He died of starvation, I think, and dysentery.
0: I thought huh. the use of the word fortress, I, I thought it was very um beautiful and, and you know Clear, but that word "fortress," for, uh, fortress Russia is a phrase that we hear now around their invasion of Ukraine. Hmm. Yeah, and so hmm. that idea of the fortress, of the keep, of the castle, of the defended space is is interesting. Just because yeah, it it's just came surprising. up coincidentally. Mm-hmm. But then also, I knew a man named Ernest Bradley, and um, he was a student of mysticism broadly speaking and then you know narrow down into a particular path but his take on the gulag was that it was a factory or place the high propagation of saints
3: <laughs>
0: of 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 um that that profound suffering that um he speaks of through the snow the dimness of the light uh, going mm. underground, you know, and the struggle to make it to and fro to the hermitage. Very interesting. Um Paul of suffering as a path to sanctity, I think is very strong in the Russian psyche. Definitely. Yeah. I think it is
2: too, from what, what I come to understand.
0: Yeah. I just read a,
1: a Chekhov story that it reminds me of this a lot, but I forget what it's called. But I have, at my dad's house, I have volume eight of the collected Chekhov stories. And it's a, similarly in a snowy, it's in a tavern, I guess you, an inn. And the snow is beating at the window, and the s- stove is struggling to warm the room. And there's a guy with his young child. Uh, it's the middle of the night and the child's trying to sleep. And the, and the father is just sitting there kind of brooding. And then a young woman walks in the room and the, the man and the woman begin to speak. It's it's just very evocative and kind of, I don't know, it has that kind of magical Russian quality like this this story that you... Red, something, what is like Beckett, like you know, everything is, uh, what's the word, reduced to its minimal uh, mm. factors, you know. There's, there's, you can't even see anything. I Everything's mean, just white, and it's just these two people alone in a room, telling their life stories to each other, essentially.
2: Yeah, and along those lines, yeah. uh, mm. the in the pillar and ground of truth, I should mention that the friend dies. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, and all the letters are letters to the deceased friend. Plus, you in this that, one, the
1: other guy died. He's talking about our good friend who started himself to death. It, it's almost like a kind of Saturday Night Live version of uh, Russian <laughs> Orthodoxy, you know.
3: Yeah, Poor a Joe,
1: lot. he like, you know, bound himself in barbed wire and bled to death. Nice guy, though. And Igor
2: only survived on the Eucharist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. ended up starving to death all but all so, 12 letters were sent to the friend the friend that he describes in the letter on friendship which is the 11th letter but all 12 are addressed to the uh, this this person who um from whom he learned so much or and it wasn't so much of a discursive thing but developed a theological intuition i suppose um mm.
0: it's uh, now, Andrew, can I interject? I, I I thought I heard you say that he wrote these letters to his friend, yes. but that his friend was already dead.
3: Yeah. That's what yes.
0: So the letters were written to uh, to a person that no longer existed, except Correct. in his. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yes, that's, that's a. Exactly. I wonder what. That literary form is hmm. I bet it's got a name
2: the apostrophe Maybe.
0: well hmm. though where you're writing a letter did he know he he didn't know that his friend was dead oh no he did interesting uh, yeah. not as interesting as I think it would be if uh, he was writing them oh, and right. the guy was already dead yeah, um, just but him. he's using it as a as a conceit it's a literary conceit hmm and it says something about love. I think that that we have
1: to uh, uh, footnote in our vast understanding of love that the love that survives death—that uh-huh. death is, you know, perhaps the truest love, the greatest love.
2: Hey, going full circle back to the visitation dream, right? When the mm. the the departed returns uh, in Uh a dream dream and Uh dream that love resolves itself or continues or morphs into something else Mm -hmm. in a Uh a dream. I I think there is something of great profundity
0: there. I agree with you, Sparrow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I also think in his praise that it bespeaks a profound faith, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that, He is writing to somebody who's deceased, and that there's, for me, the gesture of confidence in the afterlife that he's going to see him again. Oh, really? I think so.
2: Hmm. I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I don't see that um, in the letters so much, but um, it may very well have been part of his theology. I I don't think there's so much of an expectation um, for a reunion. As much as there is um, a, a spiritual and moral responsibility to do something with you know, the love that the friendship created while while he's alive. And also,
1: I, I, you know, there's uh, this philosophy mm. of personism. You know, this philosophy, I don't know if I ever,
2: ever mentioned this. No, I don't know personism. Personism I know is
1: the, it's the manifesto that Frank O'Hara wrote. Oh. And it's kind of a joke, like everything that Frank O'Hara did. You know, the New York School of Poetry was kind of, the idea of it's kind of a joke. It's a one-page manifesto that you get the feeling he kind of uh, just tossed off, maybe in 1959, I'm just guessing, somewhere around then, I think. And he said that a poem should be written to the person one loves the most. That's my memory of personism. And that's how I took these letters. That he had to write him to this guy because this was the person he loved the most. That's, that's uh, sort of his muse. It's, uh, that's what makes him write. And I, I think that in my case, part of the, I'm sort of lately in touch with, you know, the, my friend from high school, this woman, Karen Gould, that I wrote a whole series of letters to, you know, when I was in high school and in co- early in college. And I I feel like I sort of willed myself to be a writer just out of my love for her and out of my desire to impress her. You know, I think there is a way that that writing comes out of a a particular kind of love. You know, writing
0: itself maybe comes out of what uh, Milton would call discourse.
1: Oh yeah, I guess it is. I think it's a little more than discourse though. I mean, I think it's, it's sort of like an attempt to, may I guess an attempt at intuition, an attempt mm-hmm. to, to, to raise oneself up to the angel's level, to use your metaphor, out of kind of devotion to this other person. Mm-hmm. You want to give them the greatest gift you can give. I mean, that, that's, that's how I hear those letters that, that you read us, the excerpt of, Andrew, that he's trying to give everything he has to his friend, because this is who he
2: loves. Yeah. And it's beautiful that we received the letters,
0: right? Yeah. Did he intend them for publication?
2: Um, Don't believe that. You know, he published um, one theological work in his lifetime called Iconostasis, um about iconography which is begins with like a brilliant dream analysis i mean this guy was a genius he he also when he was in the gulag he also learned botany in and out and was doing original research scientific research Uh, you know wow but uh these letters were published posthumously so i don't know if he intended them for publication or not i mean they have an informal feel to them they're not so systematic which makes me feel as if uh they were um More of a private correspondence.
0: Uh huh. Did did he do more of that type of writing? Did he keep a journal? I don't know enough. Um, It's a good question.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do know actually that he, he, yeah, he did keep quite a uh, significant journal um, when he was uh, somehow when he was in Siberia imprisoned. Hmm. uh, Because I've seen some of the leafs. they almost look like the uh, journal pages of Leonardo da Vinci. And then um, there are a lot of doodles and diagrams and uh, Uh, prose uh, jags and uh, geometric shapes. uh, (laughs)
3: Because
1: he is,
2: he's a Renaissance man like like da Vinci.
1: He's interested in botany. I guess he's probably interested in all sorts of
2: literature and art. Yeah. And all of that comes through in the letters. They're they're really incredible. Mm -hmm. Huh?
0: So that breadth of interest in the shape of things was, you know, not, he wasn't on necessarily a path of renunciation.
2: Um, not entirely. Uh, not entirely. That asceticism.
0: Yeah, I mean, he was an yeah.
2: ascetic, definitely, but um, um, not entirely. And it all, you know, I I think that he's suggesting that it all began with, with this friendship that he had, that there uh, was something about that act uh, of moving out of the self. That's how he describes it. Mm. that began a larger philosophical slash theological slash scientific investigation into the shape of the human heart, the Mm. world, the universe. Uh, It all began with uh, the Thelia. That was the the spark. Mm. That was what um, pulled him out of himself.
1: And that's the kind of spirituality I'm drawn to is the kind, because I've been reading uh, Thoreau and kind of obsessing on Thoreau and Thoreau was like this, of course. You know, he he had all sorts of spiritual feelings, but he also was a real student of uh, uh, nature. And, you know, he did sort of like original research. He was in touch with uh, scientists that he, well, he would was send a, specimens to.
0: But he was also a profound friend of uh, Emerson. Emerson. Yeah. Yeah, that's significant in terms of a friendship. And and I believe it, it went both ways, um, you know, that Emerson also picked up would have, you know, been a, a um, more bell arts if it weren't for Thoreau. I mean,
1: so. my sense of it from reading, you know, a couple of biographies of Thoreau is essentially uh, Emerson was the preceptor, was the mentor to Thoreau. And Emerson sort of predicted, prophesied that there would be a Thoreau, that there would be someone who uh, could both understand the world and have an inner life balance together. And then Thoreau, who lived, he's from Concord, where, you know, he's like a native, all these, you know, philosophical uh, transcendentalists moved to uh, Concord, kind of like hippies moving to Woodstock. But Thoreau was a local, he was a native, and he became kind of the person that Emerson predicted would exist. But they had kind of a thorny relationship. They both, you know, they were close, they took long walks. But and also think- Hawthorne. Hawthorne lived there for a while, yeah. And
0: sold. Yeah. I think I think
1: Thoreau sold his boat to Hawthorne. As
0: I recall, that uh, Thoreau and and Hawthorne, you know, were kind of a little um, asymmetrical. But um, yeah, they they did a lot of tramping around together and talking. Um, Th- yeah, uh, but it was kind Hawthorne, of Hawthorne kind of quiet. I
1: think that I think that Thoreau and Emerson were both. Uh, kind of frustrated with each other. and but eventually, by the end, you know, of course, Thoreau died young. By the end, I think they did, you know, sort of recognize that they had a real love for each other.
2: well, that's yeah, that's another big piece um that has been haunting my mind as we've been speaking. The, uh, look, it's, it's inevitable, um, that, uh, the, there are going to be struggles and close friendships, but, you know, trying to, or any relationship, trying to get to that place where you return to love or you're, where you reconcile, I just, I think that's ever so important. It doesn't always happen. It can't happen in many cases, but I see it, I see the absence of that tear people apart. Hmm. Yes, of course. People who love each other, but who, end up in an acrimonious posture or estranged, but continue to long for the other. Mm. That's it, It's not just like, F you, okay, you know, good riddance, I'm leaving. You know, this is a dysfunctional, mm. but where there's concurrent to the dysfunction to the estrangement is this overwhelming desire to work through it.
1: Then mm. so what are you saying that's really painful to see? Is what yeah.
0: You're yeah yeah i think people try to come together i believe that people try to achieve union or you know (laughs) communion with other people you know that that's a that that is a inclination of the human of Mm. anybody with any balanced mind so Mm. i can dig what you're saying andrew yeah but so many people cut off relationships. I think uh, you know
2: when the when the first struggle appears. Yeah, I mean that to me, ironically, is uh, there's more empirical evidence for that than the, uh, what you're describing, which I agree is a deep human need and an inclination, but often one that goes unheeded. It's really complex, I think, because
1: I mean I don't know. As I bec- I like to call myself a feminist, even though it's, it sounds ridiculous for a guy to call himself a feminist, but I. Maybe partly for that reason, I'm very, like, stubborn about calling myself a feminist. And I think, basically, I guess I sort of feel like when a woman walks out of a relationship, she has every right. When a man walks out of a relationship, he has no right. I mean, I don't know if that's feminism or just, you know, sim- oversimplification. But in other words, the power relationship is a key factor. There's some relationships you should walk away from mm-hmm. because you're not going to win. And the other person is always going to dominate. And you just have to accept that, that you, the, the wise thing to do is, is to escape. And, and there are other relationships, hopefully most relationships, where you, you just have to work and work and work. I mean, I think that's the one thing I've been wanting to say about all these love uh, discussions we've been having is I think I think this about myself, that I've kind of worked harder at being married to my wife, you know, at my marriage than I've worked at anything in my life. And it was in a way the most uh, productive, you know, maybe just when you work at anything that hard. It, it's, it's productive. But I, I just in a way, I'm sort of proud of myself for having done
2: that. I'm obsessed with your story, Sparrow.
1: My story?
2: Yeah, you you said something offhandedly once that 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 has continued to reverberate in the ears of my consciousness. And uh, you want to hear what it what it was? Yeah, of course, uh, of course you do. Right? Oh, you just described a fifth roughly a fifteen year period mm. in your marriage where there was some static or some estrangement or something or some arguing. That um, ended up um, resolving in, yeah. in, in in ways in some pretty profound ways, and I just that touched me.
1: Yeah, it's an, it is an interesting story, and when I look back at it, it's strange to me that my wife and I both stuck it out. I mean, the main thing is that we were very committed to raising our daughter, and that was, you know, I think we both. I probably I said this already. We both sort of thought in the back of our minds, well, once our daughters grow, and then we'll split up. And then suddenly we didn't want to. You know, yeah. it, was, it was a strange. But, I, I, you know, I can't, I have a bad memory. I don't think we were quarreling the whole time. I think no, it was, no, no, uh, no. what's no. the word, um, episodic Episodically. Or, or cyclical, yes. that we would have terrible fights and then make up and have maybe passionate lovemaking, perhaps. I'm not sure about that, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> and then then the cycle would start again.
3: Yeah.
1: I mean it seems to me that maybe some of it was cultural that that, you know, I come from a culture where people just shoot shoot off their mouths and say anything that comes into their head. And my wife comes from a family where nobody has ever spoken their mind about anything in all of human history. <laughs> I think it was a little bit that.
0: Hmm. Well, Sparrow, um, I thought what was interesting or is interesting is that you consider it to be the one thing that you've put the most work into in your life. I thought that's an, that's an interesting self-observation.
1: I mean, also, you know, I haven't worked very much at jobs. (laughs) I've worked part-time pretty much my whole life. So, I mean, I haven't, and you know, and I'm, The way that I do my writing is very, what's the word? It's not work. Let's just put it, to to summarize, it's not exactly work. So, you know, there's not too much that I've worked at, you know, just to, uh, you know, clarify. But yes, I think it is the thing I've worked at the most.
0: Yeah, I think that's super interesting. What's your sense of, what is love, Sparrow? Did you tell us? I mean I'm not really
1: it's funny I mean I mean I think in a way it's om- I, I'd be closest to saying that it's work you know that would be the the closest way to put it in words I think is it's kind of like you know you have this other person I'm talking about interpersonal love but it's probably the uh-huh. same inside you too inside yourself too that uh-huh. you, you yeah, have this we're
0: person for the whole uh, shebang yeah you
1: know you have this person you're you're trying to communicate with them everything is failing and you keep kind of seeking i mean really what saved us was the uh, i don't know if i ever mentioned this the uh, what's it called this book called getting the love you want by harville hendricks and what does he call it Imago therapy i think he calls it And it's just a very simple mirroring technique where one person talks, the other doesn't say anything, listens and then um, summarizes what not repeats it word for word, but, uh, you know, read, reinterprets it and says it back. And so, you know, when you're really furious at each other, just doing that is so difficult. That's maybe the most difficult thing in the world. Is to just shut up, let the other person talk, and wait, and then wait till they're done, and then you talk, and then they and then they reflect you.
2: Yeah, my so, colleagues, my colleague Sparrow was telling me that 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 method, the Imago method, really helped his primary relationship with his, his fiancee.
3: Mm.
2: That they were not at each other's throats or anything, but there was just. They weren't terribly good listeners. There was a strange encroaching in and they they practiced that very technique.
1: Mm. Yeah, we still used it, my wife and I, on occasion. I mean, it's um, it's and I think, you know, maybe that itself is very close to what love is. Just shutting up and listening and trying to find some means, you know, some bridge between you and the other person some sort of mutual uh, what's the word vocabulary that you can both share i don't know maybe i don't know if that's enough of a definition of love that that's the best i can do at the moment
0: well i was wondering whether there's a way of using a mago therapy or the mago technique in one's relationship with the universe
3: yeah yeah
0: you know that we're in a kind of discourse or like intuition with the universe, and uh, you know maybe that's one way of um, achieving what you're looking for, Andrew, of connecting with the uh, oh the, the big love, you know, yeah, the big yeah. love machine. Well, I think Sparrow.
2: You know, I'm really um, complimenting Sparrow, which is not hard. Ha! He Well, you, you say, and so do you, Sam. I've learned from both of you so profoundly. So I really feel humbled. Um, but, you, Sparrow, you were describing once um, mirroring what the trees tell you. What, you know, when mm-hmm. you, that the tree that you try to stop and put into words what you feel the tree is communicating to you. Right? Your favorite tree or copse of trees. I forget if it's a singular or plural. But there's a two trees, two trees. Yeah. There's some mirroring that goes on there. Is there not? You're pausing. I mean,
1: just now when Sam was talking about, you know, listening to the universe, uh, I thought of that. I thought of my tree dialogue the other day. I think my tree said to me, uh, you can't clean your room without getting dirty. I mean, I don't know if the tree said it to me or I just thought it up while standing next to the tree.
2: Or Was your wife whispering? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my wife
1: is typically whispering something very close to that to me about the the floor of the kitchen it's sort of my job to sweep the floor of the kitchen except i never do it that's one of my failings as a human being well it reminds me how to you know prayer is talking to god meditation is listening and you know i think just that effort to like listen to the universe and try to figure out what the universe is telling us. I think it is a good idea, Sam. I agree with you. I, th- I think. I think it is like an issue. I was talking to some guy. Oh yeah, I'm writing about this. This. This guy. What is his name? Something Stone. Tony Stone. He's a local guy in Hudson, New York. He made a film about a biopic about the Unabomber. So we were discussing. Uh, the Unabomber and about eco-terrorism, and he said at one point, um, he said it's it's amazing that there's so little pushback against global warming, that the, that there's so little movement against, for example, the oil companies. And I said, I said you're right, it's true. I said, but the, the problem is, I think that it's such an interconnected web. Um, capitalism and its wastefulness that it essentially implicates all of us, that it's very hard to like point to the particular loop that like when you, when you pull a string of a sweater and the whole sweater falls apart, to which is the point that needs, the weak point that, that a brilliant activist needs to focus on that will that will be what's needed right now to to reverse the climate disaster and and I think it is the kind of thing that you really need to like ask the universe ask god and just open yourself up and try to find at least for yourself but maybe for the universe maybe for everyone You know, what do we do next? What do we do? So what uh, you're talking
0: about, Sparrow, is an interesting proposition is to open ourselves um, to the discovery of something that I think you're um, saying is the phrase that can be introduced into, you know, um, society through social media and stuff that will galvanize people the same way Black Lives Matter brought people together oh yeah
1: i mean i wasn't thinking of a phrase i was thinking of a target you know like uh, oh you know maybe walmart uh, maybe exxon you know but but yeah i mean a, a phrase is also a phrase is a more realistic goal for the three of us who all happen to be writers and I, somebody told me that the woman that, you know, a, one particular person invented Black Lives Matter, that phrase. And someone told me that she was a student of haiku hmm. and she was interested in this idea of using very few words to to express a big concept. So maybe there is a way to do that, you know, through literary study. or And I
2: obviously intuition is a big part of it. What do you think, Andrew? I agree. Um, I, I don't know, though. I don't have a personally have a technique.
1: It it connects in with your interest in Jonah, I think, you know, that the, the, this idea of like finding a way to save the world. I mean, to me, that's what Jonah is about.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm just... going to uh, take this on, Sparrow. I like it.
1: Oh, yeah? You're going to write that phrase, the 3 words. Well, no, right?
0: I'm going to open, I'm going to listen to the universe and uh, allow, I'm going to make a little um, hole and uh, see what comes through it.
1: And also, you know, we do have listeners, so, uh, you know, they, uh, they can also play at home. And uh, they can go to our website, which is called Baffling Combustions. It's not the website, but a Facebook page. And, you know, if the universe tells them anything, um, they can put it in there. And, uh, you know, it uh, three of us don't have to be in charge of saving the world. Other people can well, help.
2: One thing that uh, occurs to me um, now that I'm thinking of it in, uh, in the spirit of Jonah uh, and Muhammad, for that matter, is, and St. Francis as well. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, is that uh, when uh, these great mystics and visionaries and prophets hear the universe speaking or not speaking, they are often in um, caves huh. or uh, in, in dark locations. St. Francis had a favorite cave huh. um, outside of Assisi. Mohammed, of course, received the um, initial revelations um, in a cave. Uh, Jonah um, was in the belly of the whale.
0: Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh-huh. Ambushed in a womb of shadows For is that uh, phrase the, of Whitman. And in the, in oh, the psychoanalytic yeah.
2: tradition, right? It's the descent into the subconscious that when you're mm. able to, to go there, you, um, emerge, um, with, um, some, you know, some new sense of things, a um, new, new self, maybe, uh, you know, a new vision. Mm. Um, and you can't have that without the descent, without being in the belly's well, without, you know, just going into the cave or
0: wherever it happens to be. Mm. Without going back to where we come from, you mm, know, right, the which in knows, you know, which the Odyssey, for example, points toward, but also, you know, that we come from cave people. Oh, I see what you mean. Oh, that's
1: yeah. Interesting.
0: Oh yeah. And the, and the kind of, um, the shamanic instruction, you know, mm. that would occur in those contexts. It's a mysterious thing. It's fascinating. Yeah, I find myself fascinated by
1: those uh, Neanderthals, you oh, know, yeah. who just disappeared and uh, and sort of merged with us, us, uh, what are we called, the Homo sapiens.
0: Mm. The last <laughs> pocket of um, Neanderthals, I believe, was as, was as late as 18,000 years ago. And they were in a cave down in uh, near uh, Gibraltar right that's where also where I think of the last uh, Neanderthals as being I guess yeah. I got kind of run and,
1: uh, into the I think
0: it's called Solano I think it's called Solano cave Solano is what oh, yeah. occurs to me mm-hmm. um, yeah but I too think of the Neanderthal and uh, and also many other branches of um, of human. Um, you know, there were dozens. There are, are dozens.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we should uh, pause and send our love to all of our ancestors and uh, pre-human and all the different forms of the human that
0: have no longer exist.
2: It seems I, like a, a different one is being discovered every year, right?
0: Yeah. And I think listen to them, you all. I think that's where the words will come from.
3: Oh, you mean
1: rather than like I'm going to talk to the universe, just like, hey, Neanderthals, speak to me.
0: Just you know, we'll talk to that aspect of ourselves.
3: Uh huh. Yeah.
0: On well. um, that note, uh,
2: Sparrow, I was able to find the um, the uh, poetry that Jonah utters. Oh, great! Um, yes. Yeah, perfect ending. The translation here, one second, let's see if I have a note on the translation. Um, This was written by a rabbi.
1: Oh, it's like a Jewish translation.
2: rabbi's name is uh, Rabbi Dr. Shmoli Yanklowitz,
3: who, um,
2: um, I think he's out of Arizona. Anyway, so the following text of the Book of Jonah is from the JPS Hebrew-English Tanakh. The traditional Hebrew text and the new JPS translation, by permission of the University of Nebraska Press. A lot Here, of good stuff comes out of Nebraska. Definitely, like that wonderful Bruce Springsteen album. <laughs> yeah. Here's the prayer. Do you want to hear it? Here it yeah, is. Sure. Okay. So uh, it's it's the entirety of chapter two of the four chapters that comprise the uh, book of Jonah. The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah remained in the fish's belly three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. He said, In my trouble I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the belly of Shell I cried out, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the depths, into the heart of the sea. The floods engulfed me. All your breakers and billows swept over me. I thought I was driven away out of your sight. Would I ever gaze again upon your holy temple? The water closed in over me. The deep engulfed me. Weeds twined around my head. I sank to the base of the mountains. The bars of the earth closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I called the Lord to mind. And my prayer came before you into your holy temple. They who cling to empty folly forsake their own welfare. But I, with loud thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will perform. Deliverance is the Lord's. The Lord commanded the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon dry land. Hmm. Wow, That's amazing that's the uh that's the yeah. poetry uh, written uh, in verse oh right that's right i remember that
1: well it that's does seem to
2: uh, to
1: fit poem. your thesis that uh that jonah has some kind of enlightenment experience inside the fish that kind of dissipates once he's on the dry land <laughs> yeah
2: he can't be sustained and that again that's the, the getting back to maslow it's the unsustainability of the, uh, the peak experience. And,
1: and also, I think a little bit uh, refers to something that we're kind of on the edge of talking about, that when you're inside the belly, when you're separated from the world, it's easy to be one with God. But then you're walking through Nineveh, you know, you're in this big, wild city full of crazy people all selling drugs and jumping around. It's just hard to maintain your Inner state. You know? Yeah.
0: Well, Jonah I mean, I had a mantra, didn't he? Yeah, Jonah had a mantra of just, um, just a well, few. What's his mantra?
2: His mantra was, okay, here it is. Nineveh was an enormously large city, a three days walk across. Jonah started out and made his way into the city, a distance of one day's walk and proclaimed, and here it is, the mantra 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. <laughs> that was it <laughs> 40 days more and Nineveh Forty. shall be overthrown hmm. and immediately the people of Nineveh believed God
1: maybe it's that number that 40
0: days I like that 40 days Magical more I think,
2: I think it's the, I think it's I think it's the vitality and the authority of his voice after this experience oh it, yeah, I see uh, that it doesn't take many words; that it's more of an energy that's mm. conveyed, you know that felt through the words.
0: Mm.
1: It's got three and it's got forty. It's got two of the big numbers of the Old Testament.
0: Right. Yeah, numerologically, it's interesting. It's totally interesting. Forty overthrown, days more. whatever,
1: whatever. Overthrown is in Hebrew. It's a, it's a strange word. It is overthrown. You know, not like will collapse is doomed, you know, the world will end, but rather overthrown.
2: Doesn't Yahweh say after the the flood that, oh, I'm not going to do this again?
1: Yeah, that's what the rainbow, the rainbow sign, what's the God gave Noah, the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. God said, uh, you know, he's never going to flood the earth again.
0: Uh Uh-huh. I was interested, what's the word for overthrown in the Hebrew original? But it reminded me of one thing, and that is, Sparrow, Uh um, you had said that the Yiddish word for love is derived from the German, from Lieb. Isn't that correct? I think so. (laughs) And so my question to you is, uh, is it correct that Yiddish is... A language that is polyglottinous and is made up of um, different um, language groups and stuff like that.
3: Yeah, and that's right. And that
0: there was a certain degree of choice involved in what the Yiddish word for love would be. Oh, I guess I guess they could have used the Hebrew.
1: I, I mean, my understanding, and I know nothing about it, but I have heard that Yiddish is eighty percent German and maybe you know, almost 20% Hebrew. And I think there are Russian words in it, maybe other Slavic words. Uh, I mean,
0: I think that really... But what I wanted to point out is that, you know, our family, love, Lieb, lufa, you know, that it has the um, Yiddish sanction, that it's, you know, (laughs) sympathetic, that's all. I mean, it's the same word.
1: Lieb is the same word as love. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it must be etymologically connected. I'm listening to these lectures about the barbarian peoples of the steppes, I think is what they're called. And uh, it's all about these, you know, the Aryans that swept down from, I believe, from the Ukraine, actually, and, you know, created the Indo-European family of languages. So, you know, it was a bunch of these horse-riding marauders
0: that created all these interrelated languages that we're talking about at the moment. That's what we also have to uh, listen to. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.